from Immersive Labs, this is Cyberhumanity. Hello again, I'm your host Chris Pace. Cyberhumanity is the podcast taking cybersecurity personally, trying to get inside the heads of hackers as well as putting our feet in the shoes of defenders. These podcasts essentially come in two flavours, either us ranting about themes close to the hearts of security types or us chatting about threat and security stuff from recent weeks. We are on a theme this week. Um, I'm joined by a few mail-in ballots of my very own, Kev Breen, Max Vetter, and Paul Bentham. Hello. We are going to go there, dear listeners, and talk about the US election. Oh, no. Is it over yet? I think they are actually still counting. (laughs) So maybe we shouldn't talk about it. Uh, well, we might get one of those Twitter warning things. <laughs> if we post up any, I, I was starting to wonder if you post up anything about the election and you get one of those Twitter, one of those warnings. No, I, th- I think it's just only if it's an actual lie. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> or an alternative fact. We, we live in a post-truth era, guys. How did Twitter know, though? Who died and put Twitter in charge <laughs> of it, anyway? Democracy? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to talk about the US election. And in fact, the reason I'm so looking forward to this episode is that in many ways, it is just one long hackers could, as we ask ourselves, how would we hack an election? So this conversation that we're about to have comes just a day or so after CISA director Chris Krebs, or as I like to call him, Good Krebs, um, <laughs> along with members of... I know, I know, come on, it's just, it's just a little, it's just a little dig. Um, uh, Chris Krebs, along with members of... Uh, no relation, by the way, I should clear that up. Um, along with members of the Election Infrastructure Government Coordinating Council Executive Committee... Wow, that's maybe the longest title for for a government agency ever. But anyway, they announced their firmly held belief that the election was, and I quote, the most secure in US history. And having come out and made that statement, Krebs was then promptly fired by outgoing President Donald Trump (laughs) via Twitter in a classic move. Um, uh, he was fired by Donald Trump for basically saying that the election uh, that the election was uh, was secure. So a bit of context there as we move into it. We're not going to dwell too much on that unless anyone has anything insightful or interesting they want to say about the fact that Donald Trump fired someone who knew that that was a thing. Well, you know, I'll tell you something that I will do think about this is that uh, Krebs, like massive props to Krebs because he, like, you're there in like a really powerful role. You've achieved that in your career, your influence over the United States of America cybersecurity strategy. And your boss says, um, I don't like all this like security stuff that you're talking about. <laughs> it, it, it's undermining my uh, rhetoric. I would like you to take down the rumor control website. And he stood by his principles and he stood by his guns and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And Trump's then gone... Well, then you won't be employed. And he says, okay. And then he's gone. So he stood by his morals. And there's a lot of people in that administration, a lot of senior members of government departments across the states that haven't done that. One other positive thing that came out of this was also the fact that for one brief, tiny moment, InfoSec Twitter united in our praise of Chris Krebs and his work um, done while he was in that job. The other thing, interesting thing about Chris Krebs, uh, of course, Trump appointee. Did, did you also see that um, that Mark Hamill uh, responded, basically just um, going through everything that Trump did wrong, and and then Chris Krebs responded uh, in a in 
in the way that Yoda would to, to Mark Hamill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the internet is loving Chris Krebs right now. In defending democracy, do or do not, there is no try. Oh, this is the way. <laughs> of course, some yeah. smart Alec then had to then had to tweet, oh, I looked at him on Wikipedia and he doesn't even have a relevant degree to cyber security, um, which again <laughs> ca- <laughs> caused much uh, caused much hilarity, um, as people pointed out that in 1994 there really weren't any such degrees. Um, <laughs> yeah. He was information assurance back then, children. Uh, to which, of course, someone responded, oh, I can just see Krebs' next job interview interviewer qualifications. Well, I defended the 2020 election against tampering from Iran, Russia and the president themselves. In between I tried to defend hospitals against <laughs> ransomware in a pandemic. The interviewer that's great Chris, but do you have a CISSP? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So let's imagine the four of us, we're all in cahoots we all want to hack an election could be anywhere. It's not relevant this to the US particularly, could be anywhere um, how do we think we would go about in the information age let's call it, what are the things that we could maybe do in thinking about how you could hack an election. Well, you know, I, I want to take your challenge on, Chris. I love this challenge, right? If We're, ha- we're going to hack an election, right? So let me just think. Well, let's think about the first thing we would do. And I think the first thing I would do is I've got to pick a side that's likely to win. So there's no point, if this is a US election, try to pick the libertarian candidate. Never going to win, right? So what's the point of that? Nobody's, like, it, like to if you were to fraud in the libertarian candidate... It would be pretty obvious. To that point, um, the 2016, there is a a stat that says the 2016 US election was decided by a mere 70,000, like, available votes. So basically, if you looked at the, the way that the voting, the way that the voting swung, you only needed to swing those 70,000 votes or influence those 70,000 floating marginal voters, if you like, to be able to decide the election. So as long as you were picking, as you say, as long as you were picking a side, you've got to pick a side that had a that's chance likely of, yeah, to win, right? Exactly, yeah. So that's the first thing. And then you've got to understand the system. So firstly, we've got to pick a side that's that definitely has potential to win. And then you've got to understand the system. So there's, like, for example, if we were looking at the US system, where it's electoral college, there's no point in us trying to influence a load of uh, Republicans in California to to vote Republican, or a load of, like, to try and fake a Republican victory in California. It's just never going to happen. You've got to swing, you know, four or five million different voters. Or, like, which I think we're seeing Georgia's within 12,000, Nevada's within, like, 40,000, Georgia, like, la, la, la. There's a load of close, like, quote-unquote, swing states. So, so first we're picking, we're picking a side that could potentially win. Then we're, like, trying to target our influence activity onto where we're looking. The relevant areas, so, yep. And, and that right. goes back to 2016 as well, because that's those 70,000 voters were only really in three states. It was deeper than that as well, wasn't it? Because it's not just those three states. It's specific counties in those states. specific counties in those states. If you pick those counties in those states for those people as well. Right. So before you pick the state and pick the counties, to influence this election, you're going to have to understand you've got to get some intelligence on these these users. (laughs) So you've got to get data on the... Uses people. We haven't even started talking about Cambridge Analytica yet, and Paul already described them as users. 
<laughs> we've, we, like, say, we have to get intelligent. We have products, to gather intelligence. About these products. We've got to, we, yeah, we've got to get, <laughs> got to get the data points on our product, I, I mean our people, uh, that can tell us what their voting intentions are mm. and how susceptible they will be to our influence ops. So firstly, we've got to find out, pick a, vic- pick a likely victor. Secondly, we've got to get some intelligence on where that influence could be and then thirdly we're going to have to target our influence ops on the people most susceptible to it so you're talking but you're talking now about psyops you're you're talking about um you know attempting to hack the election through the this is like the cambridge analytica thing right behavioral change if i can find the persuadable people in the right places at the right moment and know enough about them to be able to make them not even change their mind actually to be able to make them make their mind up to vote let's say um then 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 i can say that i'm successfully i've successfully hacked an election well the reason why i'm going down that route though is because that's a completely unregulated area Mm. i can say whatever i want on twitter i can Mm. say whatever i want on facebook adverts i can go on to like the uh, what's the new um american news network or whatever it's called um i can say whatever i want there's no regulation so if I'm trying to, the other alternative is I can start hacking voting machines or I can start changing paper ballots. That is, there's a lot of, there's a lot of security at that point, but there is no security when I'm trying to influence people. So I think you're, and Paul, just to, just to your, just to uh, clarify in case anyone is wondering, were you, are you referring to Parler? Parler? Is that the, is that it? The, this new social, this new social media platform for? Parler's this night right-wing twitter basically yeah which is which again i think is in the context of thinking about um one of the reasons why things like disinformation and this this psyop stuff works um is is actually because we all exist in these you know separate filter bubbles with all this cognitive bias hearing out in our own echo chamber um and we're now getting to a place where you know social media platforms are being built in order to exacerbate that cognitive dissonance in a way so it, it seems to me like in future elections present us with an opportunity to potentially hyper target you can call it disinformation if you want or you can call it you know you could call it deception if you want or you could just call it influence or advertising if you want to um but the reality is that there are ever more places to ultra target those people that we're interested in reaching um, you know, th- uh, through the internet. And that is obviously one of the big, you know, the big concerns around the 2016 election and also around Brexit was the involvement of, you know, Cambridge Analyta- Analytica, particularly um, a company that defined itself as an agent for behavioral change, um, pointing that that power, pointing that, that um, you know, data analysis and application of it um, to the idea that they could try to make people vote in a particular way. The interesting thing about Cambridge Analytica, and, I, and, and for those of you that, it was quite a while ago. So Cambridge Analytica, as far as I remember, Kev, Kevin Max probably remember this better than me, they had, um, there was an application in Facebook that people installed that due to some pretty lax privacy regulations within Facebook, was able to get um, information, data points on all of your followers. And I think probably- Friends of what, friends. Friends of friends, yeah, right? So it went- well, yeah two orders like you know two degrees of separation away from you um facebook changed its privacy policy midway through this but um but didn't do anything to uh 
assure the fact that Cambridge Analytica's data that they'd already captured uh, was uh, destroyed. And then Cambridge Analytica went on to use that information on that it was a pretty large data set in order to then I think, I get, think it was about yeah 50 million I think yeah was. a decent amount of data to then start to do influence operations or or, or let's call it a different word targeted advertising onto people that um, could change the outcome of the election if you put to one side the and I, I always say this right and I always get flamed by you guys but if you put to one side the fact that Cambridge Analytica completely breached the rule the privacy rules of Facebook and you put to one side that Facebook themselves had a pretty like naive attitude towards this mm. and that's what, be, and that's Paul that's being kind yeah, right. <laughs> to say they had a naive attitude yeah. but if you but if you put those two things to one side what Cambridge Analytica achieved on behalf of their customers which were like the Republican Party and Brexit um, you know people for Brexit they did what everybody's been trying to do for eons, which is to advertise your thing and get it in front of the right people. I have to say that as a mark, some of the watching some of the the people who are called to hearings, you know, government committees and all this kind of stuff, watching some of that um, did make me feel a bit uncomfortable as a marketer because a lot of these methods are methods that we're using that we're using all the time to identify. Is this a thing that a person is in, you know, am I talking about a thing that a person is interested in? Do I see they have an intent to find out more about it? Um, does it affect them emotionally in the way that I want it to? Are they engaging with it? You know, all that stuff is stuff we do every day. But, and, and as someone interested in information warfare, I was actually quite excited by it because I was like, this is this is it. This is like we've got to the point where if you get good at this, you can do whatever you want. And And this is one company, right, with 50 million um, bits of data on on users of Facebook. Now, who's to say other actors won't have access to, or have all ha- have had had access to all of Facebook data for for years? We we don't know, right? And that's what was both scary and interesting for me was that this is just one company, and they, they did pretty well. They made a lot of money and 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 flamed flamed quite well while they were going. Um, but it's it wasn't difficult. The application of what they did was really simple, and it's just based on, like you said, on on kind of marketing plus. But that, but that, it is no, and this is I completely agree with both of you. It's no different to putting sweets at the checkout in supermarkets, like it's where or, or putting like magazines lower down where your kids can find them and be like, "Daddy, Daddy, buy me this really stupidly expensive magazine." Like it is you you put your message. And it's mar- like literally marketing 101. You put your message where your audience is and you make sure you, you know, and you increase your probability that your audience hear your message. I think, I think the problem with this time is that because it's Facebook and because there is no regulation of what you advertise, that's you know, exactly you, you, you are regulated in TV and, 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 that's exactly- and everywhere else. And, and so you can say anything you want. And it so, can come from anywhere. That's yeah. the other thing as well. You can, cre- Anyone can, you can create, it. you can create whatever content you like. It can come from anywhere and it's not regulated. It's not regulated in any way that, that I think I, is the challenge. I think the the fascinating bit uh, in the Cambridge Analytica thing was where they where they said they did it in, um, I think it was in the Caribbean somewhere. I can't remember which which country, but they oh had, Trinidad and Tobago. This yeah, is. that's yeah. right. And they ran a campaign where they they, they were um, they wanted the young uh, black voters not to vote. So they ran a, so, a social media campaign saying, "Oh, don't don't vote." Because that's you know you're kind of sticking it to the man if you don't vote. But they were running against those people, and it worked. And no, none of those young black voters voted, and and the other people got in. 
it was anti-politics message. And what they knew was they knew that those based on um, the, the data that they'd gathered and what they'd understood about the, that demographic, they knew that they wouldn't vote. And what they understood about uh, a, the younger Asian demographic was that they would be part of the campaign because they would see it as something to be a part of and fun and viral. But actually, when it came down to it, they would go and vote. And so they they knew it, they knew exactly how to almost trade those two demographics off against one another in order to be able to you could argue influence that influence that election in trinidad the u.s did a a study a couple of years ago uh for exactly this that looking at social media uh and i think one of the the most interesting stats that came out of that was the super bowl the super bowl is massive in the u.s like it's it's one of the go-to things and over the course of its lifetime it's had like a few hundred million views. Then you switch over to social media, you take a look at somebody like PewDiePie, who's hit like 25 billion views in like a tenth of the time. Social media, if you can get yourself an audience and captivate them, like social media wins every time. It's become such a powerful thing. And like social media influencers weren't a thing when I first started using the internet, but like social media influencers are a massive part of um of the internet these days yeah the viral the viral you know sharing is exactly what they want right that's that's and that's i think the what's come out of this is they are designed they are money making machines right the facebook google all of them are, are designed to the more adverts you see the more clicks you make of those adverts and the more eyes they get on that the more money they will make and therefore the, the algorithms will design themselves around that and that that's the problem here was that i think i think the stat was fake news is shared five times as fast as real news so obviously fake news is going to be always more more prevalent than well it's real more news. interesting it's more interesting because yeah. it's not real is that, is that <laughs> yeah, why, exactly. that's a really random stat like really the fake news is shared faster five than times, yeah five times faster than real news why, which why which is, is that gives you because, like Chris said, it's it's better. Is it because <laughs> it's better, or is it better. because it's different? But is it that like well, you're sitting there listening to the radio, watching the TV, and there's all the standard news, and then out there there's this like, ooh, different, and then you share the difference. Is that? Well, yeah, because it's, it's but, almost like a, this can't be true, can it? Like, let's. But it's, but it's is also this pe- true? People want to believe in stuff like that, don't they? It's not just people. Well, going, I don't know. Some I, of the fake news, I don't want to believe in that. Well, <laughs> people no, but, do, though, don't they? And yeah. we're like super biased here. Like, the four of us are probably, you know, not, well, you know, probably didn't vote for Brexit, probably wouldn't have voted for, like, Trump. Like, it's, we're, not, it, like we're in a demographic that probably wouldn't have voted for those things. But, but 75 million people in the States or 49. Point, eight percent for 51 point whatever it was in 50 point, i don't remember what it was a lot of people more people <laughs> voted for brexit than i didn't and i don't and i don't and honestly and i'll say um i know that maybe this we're, we're well into politics here but i i don't think i don't think the majority of people voted for brexit or trump because they were conned into it by some psyops thing. I know we're talking about hacking the election and it's kind of fun. I don't think a load of people conned into it. It's not that it resonates with more people. It's that it res as we did we just went through the maths. It only has to resonate with enough more people when the margins are so fine and of course that it, it and the other exa- thing is of course that in in the case of Cambridge Analytica those things were that effort so that work was only happening on one 
on one side. So it's yeah, so, yeah. so it so that's that's where the scale that's where the scale was was tipped. Um, and of course, now I suppose you might argue, well, okay, well those methods are available to everyone. Everyone should just do those things then. Um, you know what? What difference suppose, does it make? But if that's it's... the problem, right? Is if someone is backing the fake news, and that always gets shared more, and the the other mm. side is maybe everything will just become real, fake news. Yeah, it's all just yeah. like like you said, post post uh, truth era. But I do. There's really two interesting things here because I think there's a double layer here. I think what Chris, what you're talking about there, Chris, is super interesting for me because like I've the, the lot of the rhetoric um, uh, from my kind of you know twitter bubble about brexit for example was like oh the poor stupid people have been conned into voting for this thing right and 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 i and i don't, that's distasteful for me because it it it's demeaning to the people who have intelligently decided to vote for that that particular outcome just you know irrespective of views and but what you're saying is that the marketing machinery to uh, at the first layer that the marketing machinery of the Brexit campaign or the Trump campaigns were more effective than the, the machinery of the marketing. So let's take that as a given. So then the next layer down that you're talking about, Max, is that some of the marketing machinery of those campaigns is fake. And then we're in a post-factual era. And then that, for me, is then super interesting because that is now, is that deception? Is that misleading? Is that the PSYOP stuff? Because now we're sharing fake news like you say like mistruths lies and now we're influencing people that don't have the time or the capacity to go and work out what the truth is so i think it's safe to say that we understand that opportunities exist for us to in our imaginary in our imaginary group plotting how to hack an election we know that disinformation influence um, you know, gathering and using data about our electorate, targeting the right, um, targeting the right people in the right places to tip the balance. We know that all those things can be applied because they have been, they have been in, in other elections, but I'm not sure that is exactly the same as hacking. And I suppose we could get into, we could go around the room now and see whether we think that, for example, did Cambridge, did Cambridge Analytica and the Trump campaign with, uh, I think, what was called Project Alamo. Like, was Project Alamo hacking an election? Uh, that, that, that to me is that. That to me is the question: is it is it influence or is it undue and unfair influence or is it just political campaigning? I I think it's unfair, but I don't think it was. Um, I think it was just utilizing the the tools they had, and I, I would expect other people to do the same thing. You know, and and they might they might find it that it's illegal, and I know that the accessing the data from Facebook has been shown to be illegal, but I don't think the the techniques they used is at all. And if anything, it's exactly what Facebook and Google are built to do. Like it is built to get people looking at things. Twitter and like people will agree or disagree with this, but Twitter went out of their way to identify like what they believed was fake news, to the point where they were effectively censoring trump they were censoring the president like his speech was just being blocked out because twitter determined uh that it was fake news it wasn't accurate it was a lie or whatever reason i didn't really see anybody else doing this like facebook didn't apply the same methodologies they were just like yeah don't care like people can say what you want uh so i i found it really interesting that twitter chose to like get themselves in the middle of there and 
from what I can tell, attempt to prevent that exactly that kind of behavior. But the likes of Facebook and other social media platforms, I saw nothing uh, to the same degree from them. But don't don't you find it quite interesting? Because what I have already realized I've done is I accept that Twitter's doing that now. And I I hold I hold Twitter to kind of a higher standard now that I know that they will do that. So in, in a way, my brain has already gone. Okay, yeah, Twitter's now checking this stuff, which they might not be. They might just be they might just be checking Trump, and that's it. <laughs> I mean, that's the concern, isn't it? So we we saw with Caesar, we saw them do the fact check site, which is great. That's a government body doing fact checking. Like who and Twitter is doing the fact checking, like. I, from what I see, like I'm on board with everything they're doing, but like if this starts to get used in other places, like there's got to be something around like how they're doing it because Twitter as a private body shouldn't be able to hold that much influence. They could now influence whatever they want because they could determine and choose what to censor. It's kind of the argument the other way, isn't it? Up to this point, it's been like, they should be, they should be, they should be. And yeah. now they're doing it. We're like, oh, they've, they've got influence. We don't like them being judge, jury and executioner now. So we changed our mind about it. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's the right thing. And then it, it's done its job, but that technology exists now. If I wanted to tamper an election, I hack Twitter and take control of that algorithm. Oh, because it's a trusted thing now. Well, I got dark quick, didn't it? <laughs> Kev put his red team hat on very quickly there, and suddenly we were suddenly we were hacking Twitter. I mean, I, okay, so let's think. Uh, so before we get into election machinery, uh, are there other um, are there other sort of peripheral, uh, either peripheral technologies or peripheral agencies or organisations or websites and stuff like that that we think that if we hack them there could be something that we might be able to do in order to in order to tip an election in our favor perhaps yeah exactly and we saw some of this happen um or purportedly to have happened so um oh, what's his name i always get it wrong cyberzeist um came out and said that he'd managed to hack into the alaska uh, electoral database um and there's a lot of interesting stuff there on like he made some tweets he tweeted uh some pictures of stuff that he says he shouldn't have been able to gain access to that he hacked in um an abusive system and that he could have done whatever he wanted this was disputed to some degree and it's like if you get into the email chains uh between like the alaskans the fbi and the analysts on there like it sounds like it wasn't true uh, but they're they're definitely targets. Like the stuff that you can do before you even think about. And actually, this goes to to Paul's point. Um, like you want, <laughs> don't don't be so surprised, Paul. I'm agreeing with you. Uh, <laughs> you were listening. I'm so proud. <laughs> this goes to Paul. Paul's one of Paul's first points was you need to select your states. You need to do the gain the information on them, like hidden these poll books, hidden these voter registration portals. I'm not saying you should. Uh, like I would. I'm going over. Uh, so I'm going covert here, not over. I'm not breaking in and trying to manipulate that data. I'm breaking in just to get my hands on that data, so I can take it and I can go. Great. Let's take a look at this. Let's see how I can use this effectively, to see if I've got um, like marginal groups that I think are like more predominant in this area that aren't going to vote, and then I can try and draw them in. So yeah, definitely. Uh, before we even think about election. the other um, point, I suppose to be made is when it comes to things like interfering with the 
the systems themselves, the machinery of voting. Um, it, it may be that we don't need, when we're hacking our election, we might not need to, for example, change the ballots or the way people vote. We might not need to add ballots. We could just do something that might either stop people voting or put them off voting cut or yeah or, or like stadium. cut the power at the polling station or what was the what was the one that uh, what was the one that trump was talking about on election night oh the burst water main there was a burst water main there yes. was a burst water main like i don't know 500 meters away from a from a polling place <laughs> and you know it, he was all like well you know it's it's um you know it's it's um uh, it's tactics, you know. They're trying to they're trying to rig the election, kind of thing. Um, but those those do present potential opportunities, um, especially things that will create, for example, a long line at a polling place. There is the potential that we know, therefore, that if less people vote, there is a higher likelihood of our candidate being elected. For example, that might be a route for us to go down. Well, that, and that's what's seeming incredible about this election is that there's more people voted than ever. And there's a pandemic. So that shows you, you know, people really wanted to wait in line and and, and felt they wanted to, to vote for this. Yeah. Now talking about the election, the kind of the roll the roll data, the um the voter roll or the electoral what we would call the electoral roll uh, in this country, we we, we there was a story before the two thousand uh, before the two thousand sixteen election, um an NSA contractor whose name, unbelievably, her name is Reality Winner. That's her, that's her <laughs> actual name. Um, but she leaked a report that had confirmed that the NSA suspected that the, the GRU um, were es- essentially spearfishing contractors who managed voter rolls in North Carolina. So they were basically looking to get access to... Um, the accounts of those contractors managing those voting roles in in North Carolina in order to either do something to the data potentially um, or or maybe just to have a you know to be able to have a, a closer look at how those systems work we don't we don't really know um, but we do know that um, at the heart of that there was a company called VR Systems. Um, and the suggestion was that that firm was compromised at the governor's election. There were then problems with those. There were then problems with those um, with those machines. So it feels like there is obviously, you know, there's data and mechanics behind all of this. And so therefore that presents an attack surface, it feels to me. Yeah, when, I mean, and that's why what I would think before we, uh, as we keep saying, get onto the machines themselves. Surely um, these mail-in ballots, right? No one goes. I assume you you sign your you sign your name and you tick a box. Now, so that's all based on a database, right? Because it'll have to link to a real person's database. So that database is what you you have to hack, and and so either you suppress the voters by not making it available to register, but I think the the real easy way would be hacking the database and then you say there's 100,000 more voters, you send in all the mail ballots for those voters and they get really counted. There are checks and balances in place for that though, um, which are that every mail-in ballot has a matching barcode. So it's almost like the, there's a barcode on the mailing ballot that matches a barcode on the system at the other end so you have to as you say max you have to compromise the stuff in the middle so you basically have to have 
access to the data at both sides in order to be able to know that if you, for example, created a load of ballots, that those ballots would have matching barcodes at the other end. So it's not as simple as just printing off a load of ballots and then sending me... No, you'd have to, I assume you'd have to make fake in, uh, citizens with fake um, social security numbers and, and that's probably not that easy either. But. It feels to me like if you're a citizen of a country and you have a legal right to be there, then you should have some way of proving who you are. And that kind of... I, I'm not a whole like anti-identity card person. I'm like, yeah, I've got a passport, I've got a driver's license, I've got a Google account. You know, like I kind of like I've given up my privacy for services, and one of those services presumably would be voting, and then I can prove my identity. And I've got a little smart card reader that I go and stick in a machine, I push a button, and that votes. And and I'll go I'll go even another step further. Like the idea that there's these like private companies building these voting systems, and there's the different ones across every single different county in the state is just ridiculous. There should be one, and it should be provided by the Department for Homeland Security, and it should be trusted and assured, just like any kind of crypto is. And I think in the US, they, they, the big pushback there was that to get an identity card would then disenfranchise, particularly. Um, yeah, voters, uh, minority voters. So, you know, then the Democratic Party, who would typically get voted by them more, uh, would push back against, you know, so it, then it becomes a political thing, not about an identity thing. It's so strange, isn't it? Because that to, that to us and to me definitely seems like, you know, you are a country, you have a government, um, you need to vote, you need to go through a, a process of electing your, your representatives in whatever way you're doing, you know, whoever those representatives are. Um, there should be, it feels like to me, there should be a standardized system for doing that. Actually, the way it is in the, if we take the US again as an example, because it's not an example that maybe some of our listeners are quite so familiar with. Um, but in the US, there are actually only, re- although election approaches to how elections are conducted are different state by state and in many cases county by county. Actually, there are only really three companies that control the voting machinery in the in the US. That is, three, you know, three companies that are sort of pro- providing the equipment and the systems. Are they all foreign as well, Chris? Just to like really <laughs> the American, what's it called? The American News Network or whatever it's called, the original American News Network. Like it's, it's Dominion's one of them that's going <laughs> off on Twitter at the minute. I, I think they're a Canadian company. But I think Dominion's based in Omaha. Mm, are they not Canadian? Well, anyway. I don't know, maybe they are Omaha, <laughs> but then there's like just the Venezuelan influences going off on Twitter at the minute as well. Like, <laughs> you need to stop reporting. You need I've to stop reading down a rabbit this. hole, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, essentially, although the, those approaches are different, despite the different approach in the county, there really are any those those kind of three systems. But in terms of a couple of things, and this Kev probably is where I think we would want to bring you in, there are a couple of things at play here. First of all, those those companies seem to traditionally, or at least since sort of pre the 2016 election, have been quite closed in terms of what people understand about how that machinery works, A, and their sort of approach to cybersecurity. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, because they're so closed, we actually didn't, we, we knew very little about these machines until quite recently. And now, of course, there's a concerted effort to understand, you know, how potentially they could be hacked. Yeah, they were massively closed. Um, and it, it, you're right. So it wasn't until like the 2016 election that it really kind of picked up and people stopped and kind of took an interest because that was the first time like wide-scale election tampering was really talked about 
um, and then people decided to look at the vectors and what were the possible ways in. Um, and then DEFCON has grown and then DEFCON kicked in the voter village. So there's been a lot of work in that space, but they were really close. They were um, like there were reporters who went in and said, like, we want to know what you're you're doing. There were security researchers who wanted to do stuff and they just refused to to work with them uh, or in some cases even went out of their way to block them talking about it. There was a, a documentary that was um, that was filmed on uh some of the dangers that some of these machines had uh, i think i can't remember which ones it was was it the esns ones well there's this this this, this accuvote accuvote tsx machine oh was it the Ac- yeah. yeah it was those uh, and the the company actually went out of their way to try and stop that documentary being broadcast like even being made so um yeah and then when you think that three organizations or three companies control all of that power uh, and the elections are derived from the machines that they build update or don't update it's in one hand it's kind of terrifying um i know i'm i know i'm down this twitter hole but um the the latest claims are that dominion's a, so- a canadian company and it uses some software called by a venezuelan company by called smartmatic and and the whole Rudy Giuliani, um, it's claiming that like Hugo Chavez, who's oh. an ally of Nicolas Maduro, yeah. an ally of George Soros, he's like affecting the election. Like this is the problem. Like mm. why are you using Canadian software with Venezuelan software? Like it's just ripe. It doesn't matter how good it is. It opens itself up to this kind of accusation of it. Like. What's the opposite of impartiality? Partiality. Partisan. Partisanship. Yeah. On that, on the, the, the sort of decentralized nature of the system, and this has been a thing that's been trotted out as a reason that, uh, you know, elections can be secure is because every county does it in a different way. And so that, that therefore means that it's really difficult to hack. And so, you know, that, that is a good thing for the, um, you know, for, in this case for the US. Um, but actually, I think, the, the the challenge is that when we don't know what counties are using which systems and or which machines in which ways, then it m- makes it extremely difficult to know where there you know may or may not be vulnerabilities. Um, this AccuVote machine, you know, was one of the ones that, that was tested by by a security company. It was running like Windows XP and was full of vulnerabilities. Um, and no one would have had any visibility of that at all. I don't think it matters. I I've watched. A lot of documentaries. I've watched a lot of the DEFCON hacking village stuff. Uh, I've read the reports. Um, I've read like a lot of stuff. And I think one of the biggest takeaways that I came away with was, yes, there are definitely vulnerabilities in the machines. Are they likely to have been hacked like during an election? Like incredibly not. Like the... Yes, you could get it, but like in order to, so how long does it take you to vote? Like, how long have you got behind that curtain or five, that ten machine? seconds, maybe? You've, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like the hacks they had would involve like uh, using a security screwdriver to take off the panel to access the memory card to put it into a flash machine with my laptop connected to rewrite the firmware on it. I'm not doing that like on election day. So either I'm breaking in ahead of time, um, like so. Yes, they, these attacks are viable. But the other thing we have to factor in is that 
they're not networked and yes we can get into that some of these machines have networking capability but the way they're deployed they're deployed as standalone machines with uh typically something like a flash card or a usb stick um and the data the votes are recorded onto that machine somebody then comes up at the end of the day after the after the polls are closed they take that data and they move it over to a tabulation machine that air gapped not connected to anything that then calculates all the totals from all of the machines in there so you go into a voting hall there's 30 40 10 machines this one device then tabulates all of the results from all of those things so i'd have to compromise all those machines like i'm I'm not going like i'm either getting 40 friends who are complicit with me to to go in and like program all of these machines like yes they're vulnerable but no I don't think it's viable. Doesn't this go back to um, that? The Paul touched on it briefly, though. Um, what happens it, that in in that air gap? It, it feels like that there is that there is the potential um, for for hacking because, of course, once the data is then collected from the and again in the American example, once the data is collected from the counties, it then is tabulated. And then I'm assuming in some way makes its way to somewhere central in order for all of the votes to be tabulated. So is there not an opportunity there for us as 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 hackers um, to find a way to potentially adjust that that data? Uh, okay. Again, so if I get so it's it's a machine per county, so I'd have to I could do it at a county level, so I might be able to affect one county and. I'd need like several people in order to be able to do it, or I'd need to have access to that tabulation machine. And this is a whole point of having checks and balances. Like they don't just blindly trust the numbers that that come off those. They uh, do audits. They do checks to make sure that things don't look weird. And in fact, in 2016, uh, elections we actually saw this. There were seven machines in a county, uh, and six of the machines were all heavily uh, one way. And machine number three like radically completely polar opposite to all of those machines like it stands out like a sore thumb so there was clearly something wrong with that and they went and they examined it and i think it turned out to be uh like something was misprogrammed or something wasn't correctly entered onto the system that basically almost like flipped the results so it's really easy to spot these things because you've got all those checks and balances yeah so so it seems like you're kind of affirming that whole that whole idea of the decentralized nature of this system almost creates a security onion in some ways. Yeah. Now take a step back, hit the supply chain. There's only three vendors and I know it's the tabulators I need to get. And if I can't get the tabulators by going into all the precincts, I know they're going to, well, they should, they should update their software. So if I can get the vendor and I can put something on their firmware that's going to get shipped out to all the machines and updated the week before the election, that's that's my best bet. That's where I'm targeting all of my effort. I'm not looking at individual machines. I'm not looking at people. I am looking at affecting the firmware that's going to go onto all those devices. And if they're, if that headquarters in, is in Venezuela... <laughs> 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 then I can just bribe somebody to to go in and do it for me the other thing that's been that's been pointed out as as adding um, a layer of security is that um, certainly in all of the states that are currently involved in either recounts or audits um in the in the u.s election they used paper they used paper ballots um many of the uh, many of the newer systems 
actually um, don't use traditional pen and paper. Um, so that is to say someone makes a mark and that mark goes into a reader and is then and is then counted is then counted as a vote you know goes into the goes into the tabulation um and actually that that introduction of a piece of paper where a person themselves has made a mark on it um the suggestion is that that makes the process more secure because of course the risk is if there isn't that physical representation of that person's mark the argument then is if you've done something like Kev is suggesting, whereas which is maybe I've interfered with the way the machine works fundamentally at its operating level, um, then not having that physical mark on the paper actually c- could raise questions about who has actually voted for who. It's not just one person. It's not just one person going, hey, yeah, it's faith. Like there's a whole committee of people who are doing checks and balances, and we've seen recounts that are verifying that. Uh, that the results and numbers are matching and like they've identified like to be fair they've identified there have been some discrepancies they've identified the cause of them and said like this is why they're, they're being transparent about a lot of it and i think that's the thing that's lending more credence to the fact that it is the most secure one they've ever had and in, in a way that kind of brings us right all the way back to chris krebs which i think the 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 nicest thing about all of it was they can say it's the most secure election like there, there is no doubt or they seem to have no doubt about it which is uh, proving that whatever they're doing is working because i'm sure there's all these checks and they prove that it is actually secure we've covered a lot we've talked we've talked about a lot of different ways potentially of either influencing and flat out hacking an election to me the highlight was kev pointing out what i think has been missed actually in a lot of the uh, stuff that i've read which would be to go for the supply chain and actually makes complete sense when you look at the nature of the most some of the most successful threats in like happening today they do exactly that they target weaknesses in the supply chain um in order to be able to be effective um further down the line so that that seems like it could be maybe that's what we would do if we could do a good job of hacking the firmware and we should get that research done so that we can get ourselves uh, a nice juicy hackers could headline if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you get your audio content. And if you want to know more about Immersive Labs, you can find us at ImmersiveLabs.com or follow us on Twitter at Immersive Labs. Until next time, from all of us, goodbye. 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 <laughs>